Hello and welcome to Zookeeping 101. This is the Zookeeper podcast where we take you behind the scenes talking to professionals in the industry about their stories, words of wisdom and journey so far to get to where they are today, really showing you what it takes to be a zookeeper. All views throughout the podcast shared are of those speaking alone and in no way reflect the collections they work for. So please come along for the journey, enjoy the ride and thank you for listening. Hello and welcome to Zookeeping 101. My name's James Dennis, I'm your presenter, and today I am very happy to introduce to you Aaron Whitnell. Now welcome Aaron to the show. Thank you so much for having me, I really appreciate it, and I'm really looking forward to this. Yeah, absolutely, and today we're talking all about leaders within the industry, and who better to talk to than yourself Aaron, so... Do you want to introduce to all our lovely listeners exactly who you are, where you come from and what position you hold? Sure. So, yeah, my name's Aaron Whitnell um, and I'm very lucky because I come from, well, two parks, Paradise Wildlife Park or as it will be called from 2024 onwards, Hertfordshire Zoo and the Big Cat Sanctuary. And I'm, I'm incredibly lucky because both of them are my family's charities. Um, they were started by my grandfather. My mum is now the CEO and my brothers and I of the third generation of our family involved. My role between the two parks is to effectively kind of oversee all of the future plans for the parks. Um, so working with some amazing people to come up with uh, some quite hopefully exciting master plans that are highly ambitious. And on top of that, I also host a TV show on the BBC iPlayer with my brothers called One Z Three. And uh, hopefully that's just the start of our kind of like media career in that sense. But uh, yeah, I'm very much between media and our two zoos. That all sounds absolutely amazing. Now, I want to take you back to where it all began. I want to take you back to those milestones, those stepping stones. No pun intended, I guess that one one, two, three, to becoming the person you are today and those stories behind the creation of the person you are. So I'm sure everyone's got them. I'm sure you have too. So Aaron, over to you. Where did it all begin? It's not just me, really. It's like us as a family, all starting with my granddad because he purchased the zoo on April Fool's Day, 1984. And at the time it was called Broxbourne Zoo and it was dubbed as the worst zoo in Britain. Quite a remarkable history. Lions, tigers, chimpanzees. Welfare didn't exist. Like my granddad remembers they used to have chimpanzees on these little stools, chains around their necks, and they'd be giving the chimpanzees cigarettes to smoke, the previous owners. That's what kind of welfare was like. The lion enclosure was, and you can see this on, on our YouTube, there's like a history video, but the lion enclosure was basically like some pieces of scaffolding with tarpauling over the top of it, probably the size of the office that I'm sat in right now. That's all of the space. And it was just pure concrete. And uh, he'd never really seen too many animals before. I'm not even sure if he'd seen lions or tigers before, but he'd always loved animals. Initially, he bought the land to keep growing the coach business. He was looking for a place for all of his coaches in one spot. And uh, it was my nan who actually found the zoo. And the council said, look, you can buy the land, but you you have to care for the animals that are still here. And he was like, well, that's fine. I like animals. That's not a problem. But it never, ever worked with any of the species that were here. So we always joke that he is the living definition of the term winging it. Yeah, that was it. He, he started off just trying to get the site tidied up a bit. At the time, there were no zookeepers. So the coach drivers became zookeepers, literally like overnight. It was pretty mad. So they were balancing, like some would go out on a coach shift, others would do the zoo for the day, then they'd swap. Yeah, that was that was how it got started. And a few months in, my granddad basically drove into work one day. He lived about 20 minutes away from the zoo. He now lives on site. We all live on site. But yeah, he was originally living off site. And he just got up one day, drove into work. And when he got to work, he was like, you know what? I'm really enjoying this with the animals. That morning, he decided to take the biggest gamble of his life. And he said he just did it on a drive into work. He got to work and told everyone, right, I'm going to sell the business. Over the course of 
however long, he gradually sold off all the coaches, sold off all the depots that he had. And um, it was a big business. He had over 100 coaches and several double-decker buses and garages all over all over the place. Yeah, just started to gradually reinvest it into the zoo. And at the time, no one in the zoo industry wanted him or wanted the zoo to keep going. So he was really up against it. And uh, we've still got all the paper cuttings from when the announcement was made that he was going to reinvest in the zoo. And when we had our 35th anniversary of Paradise kind of under his stewardship, the judge who came in, who, who gave uh, him the zoo license, came to that and did a speech and said that even before they'd given the kind of zoo license and that they were going to allow our granddad to go ahead with the changes, they were being pelted with rotten fruit and veg and all this kind of stuff as they were going into the courtroom. People didn't want the zoo because it, ha- it had such a bad reputation. And my granddad was like, look, if you give me like a year to 18 months, I'll get the place tidy, we'll get it all sorted. Now, sadly, most of the animals, by the time my granddad had gone through with buying the place, most of the animals had already passed away. So there were no more chimps. There was no, you know, this, that, and the other. Uh, all that was left was one lion. And then it was mainly just, I think there were some monkeys, there was some hoof stock, and then generally it was like, you know, goats and sheep and chickens and all that stuff. The first thing my granddad did was build a lion enclosure. The way that he, my granddad's kind of built the park up is that he's always chosen like one animal to be the superstar of the zoo and really market around that. And the very first one was Bobby the lion. And that was the line that was here when it was Broxbourne Zoo. And he was the one living in that kind of scaffold tarpauling enclosure. When they moved him into the new exhibit, which had grass and all this kind of stuff, they believed it was the first time he'd ever touched grass in his life. And he was 16 years old. So it was quite an emotional day for everyone. Like I said, everyone had chipped in. So the coach drivers had been building it and my family and all this kind of stuff. Yeah, that was kind of the turning point, really. So and from there, he kind of never looked back. Then my uncle got involved and my mum you know, had spent a whole education learning about leisure and tourism to go into helping to run this coach business. And if as she graduated, my granddad had to sell the coach business and buy zoo. So at the time, what she then came in and focused on, restaurant, events, all that kind of side of things. And for a period of time, it was that side of things that kept the place going because the restaurant that we have now at the zoo, that was a nightclub. They used to do like weddings, full-on carveries. They used to have all kinds of different shows and entertainment in there. And it was Hertfordshire's number one live music venue in the whole county here at the zoo. So that kind of kept the place going for a number of years. Then my granddad and my uncle came up with this concept because at the time, their way of bringing in animals, it was quite clever, really. Animal licensing had come in. So all the circuses and private owners of animals... You know, they were either being shut down or asked to move their animals on or they had to pay ridiculous amounts of money to keep these animals. So a lot of the animals that originally came to the zoo were from circuses or the pet trade or something like that. Because obviously a lot of these animals are so friendly because they're from those kinds of backgrounds. And obviously just sign of the times, this is back in the 80s, going into the early 90s, health and safety didn't really exist. They started doing animal experiences. We were one of the first zoos to do animal experiences. We could come and meet the animals, sit in with the animals, feed the animals. To begin with, again, very, very shunned. No one wanted it. And then people very quickly realized the amount we were generating from the experiences that allowed us to start reinvesting or allowed my granddad and uncle and mum to start reinvesting into the zoo. Because really, when you look at us from a size perspective, we have no right to kind of be where we are as a as a charity. We're still a very small zoo. Like the actual zoo side of things is about 15-ish acres, I think. The whole site is 30. That includes all of the car parks, you know, facilities, everything. So it is a relatively small site. So for a long time, they started punching above their weight. Then they got into media. So back in the 90s, any zoos that basically any TV company that wanted to do something with animals, 
A lot of zoos were like, no, we're not interested, no, we're not interested. My uncle and my granddad and my mum would just be like, yeah, come do it here at Paradise. So we were on Blue Peter every week. We were on all these other shows every week with various different animals. And it just helped to to grow the reputation of the place and, and get more people coming in. That's kind of how it all got started, really. He obviously changed the name from Broxbourne Zoo to Paradise to give it a completely fresh start yeah here we are next year's our 40th anniversary and um the start of another very exciting chapter for us what a journey and and as you've said it's not just for yourself it's for your family and and for absolutely everyone who's who's backed you from day one yeah massively and i mean you know that then led on to the big cat sanctuary which purchased it in 2000 it then started under our stewardship in 2001 obviously my granddad and my mom and my uncle and that because at the time me time cam were still little kids we're at that age where it's one of them obviously it's really difficult for Ty Cam and I to ever talk about like how to break into the profession at times because we are incredibly lucky and privileged to have been born into the industry born into this amazing family um charity and like yeah uh, the amazing thing about our family is they've they've never pushed us to stay in the zoo like they've always said go off and do your own thing so all three of us we've never studied animals we've just learned from our experiences working hands-on with them or growing up at the zoo doing these conservation trips around the world, going to other zoos. And we've gone out and we've learned other things just because of, at the time, you never know where life can take you. So we've all got backgrounds in different things as well. Yeah, we're just incredibly lucky and privileged. But the way we see it is that at the end of the day, we've been given this amazing opportunity to do something quite incredible, not just here at the parks, but also, you know, in terms of what we can do around the world, what we can do with our teams and very privileged. But, you know, you've got to make the most of those opportunities. You know, you're more stupid if you are given an amazing opportunity and do nothing with it, as opposed to be given an opportunity and not only continue the legacy that our granddad has, well, not left because he's still around, but you know what I mean? Like the legacy he's laid, but also hopefully improve upon it as well. So that's what we're working really hard as a collective, as a family to do at the moment. Yeah, for sure. And it, it must fill you with real pride seeing Paradise grow day on day and have that media presence that is ever growing, along with just generally that presence within the industry, which is really starting to run from the front and lead the line in conservation and education. So yeah, must fill you with real, real pride. So moving on then, is there any, from the past, any challenges that you've had to come across, um, whether it be yourself or, or Paradise, which have had to work within the times and, and and learn from the past to learn from your experience yeah because i mean i was a keeper for a long time i mean the difficult thing from when i was a keeper was and this is where the reputation did take a bit of a knock at a period of time just because we were doing probably too many experiences we were famous for our white cats which at the time i understand it, it, it the white cat situation is a generational thing you know back in my granddad's day and my uncle's day and stuff like that there were quite a few places that had white lions and white tigers but you know we've worked really hard over the last few years to to kind of really change that we've been very open and honest and you know we've explained that we after our white lions naturally passed we won't be replacing them with with other white cats we've moved our white tiger to the big cat sanctuary where the two parks kind of will always differ is that where paradise we believe is it's on show to the public it's a zoo and our modern day interpretation of what a, a good zoo should aspire to be is is a center that is focusing on endangered species breeding programs and, and so on and so forth so that's why we won't ever have white cats at paradise or Hutch's zoo but at the big cat sanctuary there's always that opportunity we will because even though we're still part of breeding programs we still do rescues and we still take on old retired zoo animals for example so when we're taking on rescued animals from whether it be rundown zoos 
or the pet trade or circuses or so on and so forth, there's always a high chance that there's probably going to be white lions or white tigers involved somewhere down that line. Some really great answers there, Aaron, and really informative looking to the past and, and really delving into it. So thank you so much for those answers. Now, the next one I've got for you, the next question is what trait, what attribute has allowed you to drive on in your career from those early days of being a zookeeper to the position you're in today? What what really is that one key secret behind your your true drive and, and success? Um, well, I mean, we've just got an amazing team around us. That's the big thing. Like my family are fantastic. Mum's so good at leading the the way the park's moving forward. As I said, we've got great, we've got a fantastic keeper team. You know that they can they're completely reliable and you've got no worries there and that always helps it's you know granddad getting started in the profession or, or like I said back in the day when we were doing like uh, loads of experiences and we had some of the you know the white cat issues and stuff like that and some of the criticism that was leveled at us we've always just kind of cracked on and obviously we take inspiration from other places but we don't like to focus on what other people are doing and it's not like it's not arrogance it's just confidence where we're like yeah sure like if they're gonna do that let them do it. Like if they're, if another dude's bringing in a new species that even like we're interested in, okay, that's not a problem. Let them do it. We'll do it our way. That's fine. We just have that belief in our own ability to create um, something fantastic for the animals and just create something amazing for hopefully the team when it comes to the opportunities they get to work with some of these species and also what others to see when they come on site as well. But I think the key thing, like even with COVID, that is something that's so unprecedented. No one's ever faced anything like that before. And again, I think mom and, and, uh, and the team were fantastic at just cracking on with it and always trying to stay positive like our mom bless her like she is just a ball of positivity even if um even if there has been a difficult day mom's fantastic at just always looking on the on the bright side and we realize that our team are here giving these animals you know fantastic lives and in captivity and that's the way that we should always look back on it yeah we just we just stay really focused on that side of things and just trying to push on and, and get through and and that's why throughout COVID, all of our messaging was very, very positive. We, we didn't want any form of like negativity of, you know, it's going through a difficult time. We know the world's going through a difficult time. Everyone's going through a difficult time, but let's still just push on and focus. And we, you know, we tried to get projects finished. And yeah, sure, there have been massive challenges and massive stresses that have come with that. But at the same time, like, sure, there's been delays. It's, 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 it's problematic in terms of deadlines, but when you look at the end product of what we've created, we're like, well, actually, yeah, sure, it was a lot of stress and strain, but at the same time, look what we've created. And yeah, just just like I said, we we always try to stay positive and that's really mum leading the way on that. Yeah, for sure. That's really, really great. And I think a really great message for the whole industry, and that is positivity is key. If you're really driven, if you're really focused and you do take that positivity forwards, you can achieve anything. And I think you guys are showing that firsthand. So some really great stuff. Now you're making my life very simple, Aaron. And that's because this next part is all about the building of a team. What you look for, what makes up your team, their traits, their attributes, and simply what you're after. So Aaron, what, what is it you look for in your team? Obviously, first and foremost, you want somebody who's passionate about animals. <laughs> Otherwise, you do wonder what they're doing in the job. For us, there's always a very big balance between, yeah, having that passion for the animals, but at the same time, like it's your job to inspire the next generation of people who could come into the profession or just to care about animals and stuff like that. So we want people who have got bubbly personalities who are, yeah, they're animal people, but at the same time, don't mind being people people like I hear it everywhere I go I'm an animal person not a people person you know we like to try and think we're a bit of both that's the way that we try to try to build a team and I think we've got a fantastic team when it comes to that 
that all sounds great. And that leads us to that next question, the age-old question, something bundled around the industry year after year, day after day. And that is, what is more vital to my career progression? What is more vital to getting that job? Is it three years of education or three years of experience? Is it gaining that university degree or getting straight into the workplace and, and trying to get as much experience as I can? It is a very hard question. Sorry, Aaron, I'm putting you on the spot here, but give it a go. What would you advise? What are you looking for? You know, if you were asking anyone of us in, a fa- in my family, we'd be like, we don't really care what your experience is or what your degree is. As long as you are a um, positive person and you've got the right personality, you can be trained as long as you've got that passion. But as long as, like I said, as long as you're happy to be public facing, as long as you're, and I'm not saying like we want you to stand outside enclosures all day talking to people, but just like we we're really keen to get people to, to talk about the animals they care for at the end of the day. Like this is the thing, these are the species you guys care about and you want people to save them. Go out there and tell that message to them. Uh, tell to, tell that message to the general public. Like, why should they care about your animal? So we want people that are willing to go and do stuff like that just as much as they're willing to clean out the animals and do all the feeds and all that kind of stuff. So as long as you've got, like, the kind of personality for this place, then then you can be trained. And it, we, we don't care what age you are or what your background is or anything like that. And I think, um, I think when you look at how keepers have started here at Paradise over the years some of which have gone on to other places, some of which have stayed here. I think that shows. Yeah, that sounds really, really great. Now, Aaron, I'm taking you into the big questions. This is a part of the podcast where we try and tackle some of the bigger questions floating around the industry. And number one, I'm going to take us over to America. I'm taking us over to a demographic survey done on the age of their keepers. And more importantly, the checkout age, which seems to come in at around the early 30s. Now, that is roughly reflected here in the UK and we're not considered uh, a trade over here. We are labour. Um, and along with living costs and, and many other factors, we are losing experience from the industry. Now, I guess the question is, is there anything more we can do to help collect this, to keep this and, and to move forwards as a stronger collective? I think we're already seeing changes in the profession. If you look at the way zoos are evolving and the kind of expertise and you look at what will help zoos is the fact that we're now in an age where people actually care about the environment. People care about preserving species and stuff like this. So I think more opportunities for the profession to evolve are going to come. Of the world, it's still taking some time to get over COVID and the lockdowns. And in the UK, we are massively affected by Brexit, which I don't think is helping the profession at all. Once those issues are able to be sorted out, and like I said, I think when you look at how um, how the public opinion of the environment is changing and shifting and people want more action and and stuff like that, I I think, yeah, I think the profession will evolve and hopefully it'll create more opportunities for everyone. Again, I'm just trying to be positive. And all we can do is just hope that, um, you know, this this kind of public passion for the environment and wanting to prevent things like climate change and, and like I said, preserving species that are endangered and all this kind of stuff continues to build and build and build because more and more people will want to get involved. And I think with that comes more more support from government, comes more support when it comes to um, funding of, of things, including jobs. I think it will change the way um, zoos do things in a way as well, in terms of like what jobs uh, there are in zoos. So yeah, I, I do think there's a there's a good chance that the profession will evolve and will allow us to, to keep people in the profession for longer without them having to kind of 
duck out and come back in. Fingers crossed. I'm loving the positivity. That's it. It's becoming a running theme in this podcast, which I am. I am absolutely soaking in. It's it's cracking. Yeah, I I do think as well though. Like, um, if if there are people out there that are struggling and say their zoo doesn't feel like they're in the position to to allow for better wages or or that you know there's there's all kinds of situations like that i i do think there's now um fantastic opportunities using technology and media for zookeepers all right it would have to be treated like a second job but uh especially when it comes to media there's now platforms for you to earn more money still talking at least or or doing something whether it's media related or or you know i mean social media related or internet related around what you love you know because if you can get it right on those platforms and you can make a, a good living it takes a lot of effort to begin with but then hey that's any profession isn't it obviously like i said i hope there's positive change in the wages and 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 the profession continues to go up and up and up but i'm just saying like if if anyone's ever feeling like they need to try to to do something it may have to start off as a hobby but there's always that opportunity using you know modern technology like podcasts or um or social media or or, or something now there are better opportunities in in that sense to to make a second income yeah exactly some cracking answers for a quite a hard question it, i mean to be honest with you that's kind of why zookeeping 101 this podcast has has been started is to, to create that open communication from within the industry to show you all sides of it not just the the happy go lucky side of things and and to really show that there are voices out there such as yourself aaron along with a whole host of really experienced and, and open people who really are there to help and just shows that we we all have been there we all are there and we all understand where we're coming from so we are a, a close-knit community and, and definitely to lean on that when needed now that's number one done we're now moving on to number two number two is something which is affecting all of us uh within the zoo industry and it's something which is incoming slash already here being the the change in the guidelines uh for the for the zoo license showing that we have to change we have to evolve there's over 120 pages of the stuff um, and what i wanted you to focus on for number two is conservation now zoos do it worldwide every single day it's very much the makeup of the modern day zoo but the change in the government guidelines is stating that you can no longer just give finances towards a conservation initiative you have to actually prove and show what you're doing as a collective so basically where i'm going with this is if you had unlimited funds, what would you do to achieve this? But I think more prominently, for yourself, Aaron, what are you already doing to achieve this? Because I'm sure you're already doing bundles. <laughs> no, thanks. I mean, look, if, if we had an unlimited budget, then uh, we'd just probably buy up everything we could possibly buy and and uh, secure that ecosystem, to be honest. Um, so it's a dream of ours to one day, not just, not, I'm not just talking abroad, I'm saying like here in the UK, we'd love to have our own reserve here in the UK, Maybe our own reserve abroad one day. Who knows? Maybe our own plot of ocean. You, you just you never know how conservation goes and what you can. Our own plot of coastline or something like that. That basically everything that's there is is cared for. I think the way that zoos can um, can evolve with, uh, look, with with legislation and stuff like that. As soon as it gets passed, regardless of what it is, uh, I know they're negotiating it at the moment. But regardless of what the outcome is, zoos are going to have to evolve in one way or another, right? 
um, whether we like it or not. And um, at the moment, they're negotiating certain bits because I think there's some bits in there that people are like, oh, I don't really understand how that'll work. There's other bits that um, I think have been coming for a while that everyone knows in some parts about being more hands-off with certain species and stuff like that, which, you know, I think that's a bit of old generation, new generation sometimes. But um, I get it. And like you said, you just got to evolve, right? Um, When it comes to conservation, yeah, like I said, if we had unlimited funds, then we'd just save every species, right? Let's let's just, that'd be the aim. Uh, but no, I'm very proud of what we do from a conservation perspective. And, you know, we've got an amazing person who is um, doing our, our kind of like conservation reports and master plan for us in Andrea Dempsey, who um, also works for WAPCA and um, for the IUCN. Uh, Paradise is the UK's first centre of species survival for the IUCN, which is something that we're incredibly proud of. You know, Andrea, she's obviously in a better position to talk about this than me because she's the one doing all the data and the facts and all this kind of stuff for us at the moment. But uh, all of this will be part of kind of like how we, um, when we rebrand next year, we're looking, we're not just doing the rebrand, we're also doing the master plan for Hopsha Zoo, we're doing the sustainability master plan, we're doing the conservation master plan. So it's like a big organisation master plan in a way for how we're going to continue to grow. But She'll tell you, like, you know, we're for our size, we punch well above our weight. And it's something that we're very proud of as a family that was installed to us by our granddad. And, um, you know, he was always really keen for conservation. And and our uncle's done some great stuff back in the 90s. Um, and even in recent years, like the years pre-COVID and, and since COVID, we've had different members of the team already going out and doing conservation work around the world. You know, um, and we've just started our keeper conservation project as well so each year um different members it doesn't actually just have to be keepers actually that just team across the team um different people from across the team at paradise uh seems to be half getting the branding in there they basically submit a report on a place and a project they want to go and work at and with yeah basically it then goes to our conservation committee which we've also not long set up as well the conservation committee give their thoughts then it goes to our trustees we've got some fantastic trustees who are very supportive of everything we do. From that, we then choose the team that we are then fully supporting from a financial perspective to go out and do the work. We're trying to get people out there as much as we can. We sponsor people as well. Like one of a really beautiful story. Um, and this goes back to the start of the kind of partnership we've got with the Ugandan Wildlife Conservation Education Centre, UEC, in, um, in Uganda. Uh, one of their keepers, Jenny, she cares for the lions out there that we sponsor. She came to the UK. Um, we we sorted out for her to come to the UK and uh, she spent some time at both of our parks and it was really sweet. We said to her, like, what's the one thing you want to do now that you're here in England? And uh, she said, I want to go see Manchester United play. So um, we took her to see Manchester United. But um, what's really amazing and uh, it just shows you the kind of bond that we have with the teams that we work with around the world. Um, her daughter's actually named after my mum. So it's really, really amazing that we've we've got some fantastic friends all around the world through this conservation work that we're doing. Yeah, I'm pleased to say that like we're already well on track for like, you know, the changes when it comes to conservation of, of what we what we need to do. We're just waiting, I think, to find out kind of like what category we're put in as a zoo in terms of because I think there's like a small zoo legislation, medium zoo legislation, big zoo legislation. Um, really, we should be in the small. Yeah, we will. We will wait and see. But regardless of what category we're in, we would always make sure that we are going above and beyond what any of the requirements are anyway. What a cracking answer. Thank you so much for opening up, Aaron, about the inner workings of Paradise and the real good you're trying to achieve on the conservation front from the inside and, and really showing that zoos 
are already doing good. This hopefully will only promote the good that zoos are doing and will further us as a collective. So fingers crossed and we'll see what the future holds. Now, your final question there, number three, leads us to collection planning. It's something that everyone wants to be part of. I very much would love to have my favourite animal in there. Everyone would like to have their favourite animal in there. But obviously it's not as simple as simply picking a species. It's so much bigger than that. It's a working document. The question I've got for you is what makes your collection plan so unique within the industry? And looking back, is there anything you would change with your collection plan? Uh, We could get more land. That'd be beautiful. (laughs) No, the key thing for us is we are trying our hardest to be as realistic as possible possible and we're also really taking a hard look at ourselves and saying you know what realistically do we have enough room to care for what don't we and building towards that um so for example when the opportunity came up to get some bears we saw some bears as being the perfect fit for paradise because one um we feel like we had enough land space to give them but also because of their behaviors and being so arboreal we felt we could design a habitat that perfectly met their their needs you know there's a reason why places like yorkshire have polar bears and not places like paradise wildlife park because of the vast amount of space they need and and all that kind of stuff we're trying to be very selective in what we have unless we we got the most ridiculous amount of land and all that kind of stuff we will never have elephants um because uh we had the choice between elephants or car park we need the car park um you know even though we can't have some of those mega mega species at the same time like we feel we can create some amazing habitats for other species we've always done big cats well that's our reputation so um when it came to how we developed the park the way we see it is like it all started back in 2017 in terms of this modern paradise and the evolution of that the park's going through at the moment granddad has left a fantastic park to to continue with like he's able to just kind of sit back relax and enjoy as both parks move forward now he's got fantastic trust in in mom and what and what me and the boys are trying to trying to achieve and our dad's such a huge part of it as well because without him um, and his expertise when it comes to finances and secondary spend that would also be huge. We had a bit of a dilemma when we first started because all the money that Paradise had made in profit for the last kind of like 15 years or so had pretty much been spent on the Big Cat Sanctuary and developing that. So we knew that Paradise was starting to look a bit old and tired. And when it came to, right, where do we start? We thought it's probably best to start with the most dangerous animals because we were just like, you know, if if there's any situations that could get hairy. Whereas, like for example, even though we know and like the lemurs will be an upcoming project in the cu- in the next couple of years, we were like, well, you know, if, if a lemur gets out, it's not going to hurt anyone. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? So, uh, not compared to a big cat or a, or a big snake or something. So it's a bit of a funny one. We start with the anacondas because somehow we've managed to accumulate three of the biggest snakes in the UK. Um, we never planned on this, but um, we've got the biggest anaconda on view to the public in the UK. Her name's Optimus Prime. She's amazing. She's beautiful. When it came to building a new habitat for her, because she'd well and truly outgrown the one she was in, we really wanted to make a, a, a statement with the habitat we built. We feel like we really did that with the anacondas. And even though we've made some wonderful habitats since, like, it's always amazing to watch people go into that anaconda habitat for the first time because everyone's like, holy crap, <laughs> like this is what you call a big snake habitat. And um, yeah, we feel like we've really kind of laid the benchmark for, for large snake habitats in the UK, at least. And again, started with the mixed species. So there's some plicker plicker in there with her that get on really well. And yeah, that was the first project we were able to do. The issue we had was at the time we did that, we were very big on third-party tickets. We had been trying to move away from that. 
because um, it, it wasn't generating anything for us. It wasn't giving us the funds to reinvest in the way we wanted. It's always, this is going to be funny because it's the only project we've ever opened on time. And we always say it's because it's not an animal project. Right. And my mom had been really carefully looking at other things to bring in because we had, we've got a big woodland here that um, we're not really allowed to put any animals that aren't kind of like originally native to the UK. And we've been looking to do something that would bring in a whole new audience to the park because as a family, we'd started going and exploring other zoos around the world to gain inspiration. But to build the kind of habitats we wanted to build, we just didn't have the funds for it. Yeah, we went and um, looked at these other places, but we needed to find a way of, of doing something that would that would then give us the funds. So we then made, or mum and dad made the decision to do dinosaurs. What we did, and I think this is where we're a bit different to other places, we look a lot more at pop culture than other zoos, I, th- I feel. A lot of places were doing dinosaurs, but for like three months at a time. I think one or two places had permanent dinosaur fixtures. I think it wasn't long after West Mids had put theirs in. Obviously, we didn't have the budget that West Mids spent on theirs. Uh, but we saw like the Jurassic World trilogy was coming out. David Attenborough had new dinosaur documentaries coming out. There was going to be spin-offs to all kinds of different things uh, involving dinosaurs. But the biggest thing was that dinosaurs were back on the primary school curriculum. And we were like, well, that's perfect for our target audience because our target audience is, is really young families with kids up to 12 years old. My mom originally was was looking to to bring them in a couple of years earlier, but the company who we were going to work with were an American company. They flew over, went to um, somewhere else um, who didn't want anywhere near as many dinosaurs as what we wanted. And again, only wanted them for three months. Signed a deal, but that attraction put a 30-mile radius on, so we couldn't get dinosaurs that year. So we then, my mom then found, or my dad then went out and did the research, found a company in China, and um, we never met them in person. We did everything over email. And what we did was we looked at, Jurassic World 2 was coming out. We looked at what dinosaurs were going to be in Jurassic World 2, made sure we had some of them. We were able to track the dinosaurs coming over, start people getting excited for it. Um, at the time, all the native species that were kind of where the dinosaurs are now, we actually, instead of moving them on, we actually built new habitats for them on the other side of the woods. So we met everyone in the middle. Um, as you can imagine, because we knew the zoo needed reinvesting, only the anacondas had been done. The team weren't too happy about it, but we kind of needed to say, or mum and dad needed to say to them, like, look, you've got to trust us on this because the dinosaurs are going to give us the funds we need to reinvest in the zoo. But at the time, it's a it's a tough pill to swallow when we knew there were, you know, for the team, because we knew they needed new habitats for stuff. And yeah, the dinosaurs arrived in the middle of a snowstorm. That went well. Yeah, we couldn't actually get them up the road for three days. So they stayed down in Broxbourne for a few days. And then, yeah, we opened it on April 1st, and it was the first attraction we opened on time. Uh, it was the same year we stopped all third-party tickets. We expected to maybe be down a bit. Um, we'd spent about half a million on the project overall. Biggest project we'd ever done at the time. And we predicted it would take us three years to make our money back. And we told everyone, give us three years and then we'll reinvest in, like, you know, we'll, we'll be able to really start reinvesting. Uh, we made all the money back in six months. Our numbers went up by 20% that year as well. None of it third party. Uh, what we did was we put a cinema advert in front of every single world dinosaur screening in front of every cinema world in the area. And um, then a year later, we saw that Disney were bringing out the Lion King remake. And so we moved the Lion Project forward and made sure that was finished in time for the Lion King remake. So again, tied into pop culture. And then after the Lions, we then did the Tigers, and now we've done the Sun Bears. That was the biggest change, is that with the Sun Bears, we saw an opportunity to start moving away from the White Cats. We made the decision to move the White Tiger, the cow who was our most popular animal um, at the park, down to the Big Cat Sanctuary, because originally he was coming back. The EP's run at Colchester by Clive Barwick. So 
reached out to Clive. Me and my mum called him in private and said, um, look, this is really private. Please don't talk to anyone about this. But what's the situation with the Sunbury EP? If we were to be interested in, in moving in that direction, would there be some opportunities for some? And he said, oh, funny enough, you've kind of called at the perfect time, really, because there's some bears that you could have. So we were like, oh, right, well, that makes the decision. What we hadn't factored in is, is because the old Jaguar enclosure was connected to the old Tiger enclosure. Um, and obviously we needed to then adapt the Tigers to make it fit for some bears. But that then affected the Jaguar exhibit and it started to fall down as well. So moved our Jaguars to the Big Cat Sanctuary. And instead of just building a bear enclosure, we've built a bear enclosure, an otter enclosure, a binturong enclosure, a jaguar enclosure, and then everything else in that bottom third of the zoo. So we took down our entire treetop walkway, which went across the bottom third of the zoo. We've completely rebuilt that. We've built, we've refurbed one restaurant, built another one. We've put in a new Clargister system and a toilet block and everything everything so it's it we've literally completely recreated that entire bottom third of the zoo um it's part of this project so it's not just been sun bears and it, it went from being a project that would you know, hopefully only take like eight months it's taken three years but it's um we're finally there we're finally there that's the main thing what a cracking answer now i can tell you now aaron you've completed number three that's the big questions over and what a way to conclude those questions i can't stress enough thank you so much for letting us in on that little bit of information about your your collection plan, about how you look into pop culture, the way that people live and what's intertwined in that and converting that into a strength into the collection plan, showing that it's not simply a species which can pull someone in. It, it's so much more that you have to think about. So, yeah, a really great answer. And, um, yeah, I'm sure the listeners loved it as much as myself. Now, we're going to move on in this podcast to the final element, and that is the quick fire round. This is something which can go one way or another. You can either speed through it, or, as I expect from yourself, Aaron, it's going to evolve into a whole conversation about some amazing things. So let's see how we get on. Number one, very simply, what's your favourite animal? My passion's orangutans. Uh, yeah, I always joke, if we ever get orangutans, everything else will just become irrelevant. Uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, no, my passion's orangutans ever since I was a kid. I'm not 100% sure where it all started, to be honest, but um, I just find how intelligent they are um, remarkable. And I find their importance to the rainforest just, you know, symbolic in a way. So, um, yeah, my favourite animal overall is, is orangutans. Great answer. Okay, next one then. What's the best side of the industry? Working with the animals. Working with the animals, million percent. Um, I do enjoy the media work with the animals as well, but generally it's got to be something that is animal facing. Absolutely. Okay, next one then. What would you improve within the industry? I think I would improve. I, I th We do a lot for our team here at the zoo um we're, we even though you know we're growing very well as a as a as an organization we still very much try to keep that kind of like family business family charity feel to to everything that we do i would encourage more, more some of the larger places to, to to do a bit more of that you know and um if i had a magic wand uh obviously improve improve wages across the board for everyone um Absolutely. Okay. Next one then. What is your top tip for mental health and well-being? Ooh, um, as someone who's been through some, I, I've had some amazing opportunities in my life and I live a very lucky life, but I've also had some very dark, scary things happen to me. Um, almost died a number of years ago and that really took its toll on me. A very, very scary situation. I was I was told in, in 
hospital on two different occasions that they were going to take my leg off and stuff like this and uh, and and stuff. So that's that's kind of taking its toll. Um, I think the important thing is just to keep going. Please talk to people. Please reach out to people. Uh, I'm known for, like everyone always says like it's it's every, all my friends and people in the profession always say they find it remarkable how many people I stay in touch with and it, it's it's just a case of um, yeah just always making sure people are okay. Don't be afraid to tell people that you love them, even if they're your mates. I always end, this may sound really dark and a bit ominous and all that stuff, but like my close friends and and all that kind of stuff, I'll always end any conversation I have with them with like much love or see you later, much love, all that kind of stuff. And it's, it's just because of what happened to me when I was younger. You just never know what's around the corner. So cherish those moments with people, but yeah, reach out and talk to people reach out and talk to people and just keep going. If you can keep going and you can force yourself out of bed, that's the first step, forcing yourself out of bed. Even on those days where you just don't want to get out of bed, force yourself out of bed. You've won the first battle. Even if you're not happy, but you're still going, eventually you can overcome demons. Um, and yeah, I, that's what I would say personally. Thank you so much, Aaron, for opening up and telling us a bit of your story, um, some really heartfelt and really emotional words there. So thank you so, so much. Now, the next question I've got for you is what zoo globally would you like to visit and why? Uh, oh, that's a really good one. I've got a few that I would love to visit. I'd really like to visit Zurich. Uh, I've heard some amazing things about it. And um, from their master plan videos that I've seen online, it looks like they've got some incredible plans. Uh, San Diego Zoo's got to be up there just because it's like the pop culture zoo. I think a lot of American zoos really are like the, the next kind of area for me. And also I think um, I'd, I'd really be intrigued to go to some of the places over in China because I hear that China's got some remarkable places as well. Um, so yeah, I'm a bit all over the place with that one, but uh, I'm a zoo nerd. So yeah. Give me, give me any zoo I can. Some really interesting and exciting choices there, Aaron. Now, the next question I've got for you, I need you to put on your mystic hat and I need you to look to the future. In about 20 to 30 years, do you still see zoos being the same as we see them today? Uh, I don't. I, if I'm being really honest, I think I wouldn't be surprised if there's less zoos. I just think with the legislation and stuff like that, I think it would make it very hard for some of the smaller zoos to survive. But I think less zoos with each zoo having like their own kind of speciality is maybe the way that I think the profession's going, which I don't necessarily think is a bad thing. Uh, in terms of like each of you being specialised in something, I think there'll be higher standards for everything across the board uh, because I think that's what the world wants to see as well. So I think I think that's how it'll how it'll it'll change. Yeah, great. Now the next one's one of my personal favourites. Who's your idol within the industry? Oof. Uh, well, I mean, look, obviously I've got the zoo side of things and I've got the media side of things. My media idols are David Attenborough, obviously, and um, Steve Irwin were my two idols, uh, who are parallel opposites of each other but both bring remarkable um, passion and styles and and inspiration to, to well, they've both brought it to billions of people around the world. In the profession, I've got to say my mum and my granddad, because I think in terms of what they've been able to achieve, managing our parks is, is remarkable. I have huge respect for a lot of people. I've got huge respect for people like Doug Richardson. I love Stevie at, uh, at, at Jimmy's Farm. Tim Morphew, Terry Hill, she's wonderful. Clive Barwick, Giles Clark, Andy Beer, Gary Batters. Oh yeah, John Minion, Graham Dick as well. I know that's a lot of people there and I'm sorry if there's anyone I've missed off. Um, but uh, yeah, like I've, I've got a lot of love for those people. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say our team as well, like Brian, our creator at Big Cat Sanctuary, Jesse and James, 
here at Paradise, Ian Jones here at Paradise, like Cassie Jones, uh, Tom Clark, who I've worked with. There's just lo- loads of people, like loads of people. Yeah, that's my list of various people from across the profession that uh, I've got a lot of time for. And sorry to anyone I may have missed off. Some really nice words there, Aaron, and I'm really sure that the feeling is mutual back to yourself. Now, we'll move on to that final question. It's one of the hardest of the whole podcast. I say it every time, and that's because I want you now to sum up the whole industry for everyone in just three words. Wild, passion, and lifestyle. You have to have you have to have a very particular yeah, you have to choose a very particular lifestyle if you want to be part of this profession, whether it's conservation side or or working in zoos. Um yeah, obviously you have to be passionate and it is a very wild profession, whether you're talking about fauna or flora. So yeah. Very much so, very much so. And and that I think sums up the podcast really, really nicely. Now, sadly, we are at the end, Aaron. We're we're unfortunately running out of time. Um I'm sure. I can speak on behalf of the listeners and myself. Thank you so, so much for coming on. It's been a real pleasure to hear your story and and hear all about Paradise. No, thank you. I really appreciate it. Um, Yeah, thank you so much for the opportunity. Um, At the end of the day, like I know you're interviewing me, but um, it it really is a team effort, what we do. Um, I've got to give, like really, what my brothers, Tyler and Cameron, what my mum, Lynn, my dad Craig, um, my brother's wife Carly, uh, and my granddad Peter have have, have set up um, is is nothing short of remarkable, and um, and yeah, I'm I'm so proud of of what they're all able to achieve, and 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 what we're hopefully going to achieve moving forward as well, and um, yeah, thank you to to our trustees, uh, Sarek Peacock and Matt Brady, and. Like I said, Gary Batters, for example, just to, just to name a few who, without them, we wouldn't be able to do the amazing stuff that we do without their support. So, yeah, just a special shout out to them at the end of the podcast. I can honestly say, Aaron, I have not had anyone come on here who's been as positive and as loving towards others as yourself. So thank you so much for being such an amazing guest and really showing what you, your family, all your supporters and, and what Paradise um soon to be Hertfordshire Zoo are all about so hopefully we'll get you on this podcast again very very soon yeah thank you so much yeah no worries take care of yourself Aaron you take care bye and that concludes this week's episode what an amazing guest and an amazing time we had now if you have enjoyed it please do subscribe on Instagram Facebook or our podcast channels to Zookeeping 101 I can't express how thankful I am personally from a fellow zookeeper to have you along for this quite amazing journey, learning about everything zookeeper. Otherwise, please subscribe. Thank you for listening and see you very, very soon. Bye.